Welcome everyone. This is your host, Josh Newton. We have another episode of North American Deer Talk. Uh, today I'm joined by Jared Berry. Jared's uh, owner, manager of Powder Ridge Outfitters, uh, what I consider one of the premier hunting destinations in Pennsylvania. So we're going to have a nice conversation today with him regarding uh, whitetail conservation and private whitetail management um, via hunting. So, Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, uh, a, little just a little nervous. Yeah, you can you can be nervous. I won't pick on you too much. So, Jared, Jared and I, uh, we're we're fortunate. We've uh, worked together uh, in a in a professional manner. Uh, you know, in the in the deer world, and then also on our uh, PDFA uh, state board here. So. Uh, Jared and I have have some history and background together, so we know each other well. Um, I wanted sessions to have, record them. What, what's what's that? We do these sessions all the time, but we never record them. That's exactly right. I was just getting to that. So so Jared and I have some, language better. I will. We have some nice uh, nice conversations about all all sorts of things relating to to deer, and um, I I wanted to I wanted to have you on today. Um, to talk about something that I think many of us um, we, we know a little bit about, but we're we're on a, a separate side of the the industry, uh, the whitetail deer industry, and we we don't have maybe the understanding that you do uh, working with the public and hunters, and then um, you know conservation efforts that you guys have in place on on your end to. To make your property number one profitable, but but also a, a great place to uh, to hunt, etc. So I wanted to I wanted to to have you on to discuss some of those things. So I'm glad you glad you joined us. Um, so the overarching topic today is going to be developing property for trophy whitetail management. Um, and when I say management, I I mean hunting because that is you know that is management in its its purest form. So can you walk us through, um, I, I guess, a high level view of kind of the steps of that process? Like when you, like, how do you go about looking at, you know, picking a piece of property, let's say, let's start in the beginning. Like you want to have this, this uh, place where you can hunt, you can manage property. Like wh what do you do? Um, first, I think it's going to be, obviously everyone's going to have their own, amount of income they can spend, amount of land they can have. So it's an individual type of thing. But when um, my dad and I started, man, this is way back. So we're, we're going back to 2004, 2005. I was um, finishing high school, entering college. And my, um, your my dad, your age. what's that? Your doc's in your age. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Your doc's in your Sorry. age. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we growing up on our farms back home in eastern southeastern pennsylvania um I, I grew up hunting deer all the time i mean that's what i did and it, and it started to morph into this management where dad and i started trying to to build these little food plots um on the farms which my uncle sometimes wasn't thrilled because we try and take a little corner of the cornfield the bean field and mix it and just just trying stuff and experimenting and, and failing a whole bunch but uh that morphed into trying to shoot bigger deer and older deer. And um, 
then it led to as as my dad and family their businesses became more successful we had the opportunity to look at potentially purchasing a property um, uh, to kind of do our own thing you know to to go manage deer um, and strictly try and have a property for managing deer and uh, that led us to the property we're in now which we're in Blair County and I, the criteria don't know if we ever had exact you know criteria one thing was a large parcel you know we were looking at that point for something four or five hundred acres plus um we were able to get something much bigger than that but it was that was kind of a minimum um and afford and what we could afford at that time you know farm ground in southeast pennsylvania is a lot more expensive than the rolling hills once you start getting central pennsylvania north central pennsylvania um but that ended up on this property and then at the same time, um, I was up at Penn State working at, well, I was a student worker at the Penn State Deer Research Facility. Um, and I remember working there and I would try to work every weekend I could. I, I was one who, uh, uh, I liked working at the deer pens more than maybe going to class at times. Um, so I spent as much time up there as I could. and. I remember seeing a, I believe it was either Kevin Grace or John Yoder, one of their sale catalogs. This is probably 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. And I'm like, wow, people actually, I mean, I, I had seen people have deer around home occasionally here and there, like there's, you know, a fenced in area in their backyard and they, and they had a couple deer. Um, never really knew what, why, or, you know, now I know there's many reasons why people may have deer, but uh, so that triggered a you know an idea of um, as as we had purchased this property, it was like, hey, can we do our own thing? Because by our own thing, I mean, can we can we get our own deer, start managing our own genetics, and then introduce them into a large property where we can then manage a private herd to then bring income off of that to pay for this property, to pay for the improvements that we're making to potentially make a living off of doing it. Um, and that led us down the path of high fence, genetic management, breeder pens, um, and building our own, our own stock rather than choosing to just buy others and stock that property with. Um, I'm getting off track with that. that that's kind of how this all morphed into what it is today. Um, now we had a, a kind of a, when I look back now, we kind of had a blank slate when I looked at this property. It was, it is, we have roughly 600 acres fenced right now. Um, a total of just shy 1500 acres on the total property. Um, it was 99% timber. There were some old um, farmsteads that were planted in like Virginia pine, red pine, some other pines like that. Um, that kind of, when you look at the, when you look at the aerial, you could see these were the old farmsteads. Um, now they're up on a hill, so it wasn't like low fertile bottomland soil. So I think there were some pasture animals and this and that, but it was all converted to pines from what I would understood from people around here telling me in like the fifties and sixties. Um, so we started to lay out we started to take this clean slate of, of, of basically not mature timber, but all timber, uh, 
piece of timber property, no fields, um, nothing like that, no food plots. There was a power line that runs through the middle of it. There is about 40 acres of ag fields at the bottom of it, but that's not part of what we have fenced. There's actually a property between us a little bit, but that separates those, those ag fields. So anyway, um, we, we started to look at how to develop this, this property first and foremost to make it huntable, to um, can we build fields on this place up on these hills that can actually produce tonnage, produce food, fully on supplemental feed. That's never something I, never, never somewhere I want to be where my deer have to rely on their supplemental feed. So the fields was the biggest things. We, we grew up farming, so the food plots, that aspect, um, it then morphed, I keep using the word more, it then another, another management um, improvement, if you want per se, that we started to work on was timber. Um, we, we had all this timber, and as I learned more of, of timber and, and select cutting, clear cutting, shelter wood cuts, you know, different styles of cuts that not only will improve, hopefully improve the timber 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, um, but selfishly speaking, it, it was improving the habitat, the food sources, the cover and all that for, for our deer, turkeys, wildlife, all that. But you know, the focus of here, what's driving our income source would be the, the white-tailed deer. Um, so we just kept doing those improvements. Um, we had some hiccups on the way, you know, some, some things that uh, were unexpected. So it took us a little longer to get to where we are. Um, but, you know, it, it's developed into a place now where we, on our 600 acres, we have roughly 30, 35 acres of fields that are actually now um, producing pretty well for us. By producing, I mean, you know, the plants, you know, it's, it's not a, um, it took a little work. It took a lot of learning. It wasn't like going into a, uh, where I'm from, you know, Lancaster, Southern Lebanon County, going into those soils and, and, you know, throw a seed down something grows. It was a little different with shallow soils, shaley soils and, and learning that it was, a, it was a big learning curve. Um, on the preserve right now, we have about 60 acres of, uh, what was a shelter word cut. So mainly we went in there and we cut about 50 to 60% of the trees that were there, leaving, generally leaving our best stock for the future, but also increasing the, um, decreasing the canopy cover by 50, 60% to get sunlight into that ground. And now we have two, three years of regeneration on some of those cuts. And it's, um, you know, in some of those areas, we might be producing, a, you know, a, close to a thousand pounds of, of food from a deer's perspective uh, per acre. Um, that's now starting true. to get thick, that's not going to be able to hunt it real well, that's but um, vegetation. It's part of our man. That's vegetation, yeah. Vegetation. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and that takes some management. You know, there's invasive species that I, you know, struggle with all the time, but, you know, you got to manage those so that way. We have a regeneration of our, of our oak trees. We have uh, blackberries, raspberries, blueberries, all that stuff's growing out in the preserve right now. And, um, that's just part of our habitat management that we're trying to do behind, behind our fence. So don't know where, where that's going to take us, but yeah, keep me in line. So <laughs> no, that's, that's good. And I, I think that, um, I think that whole process, um, for folks to hear in, in, in one shot is a nice, you know, kind of storyline 
to work from. So the initial, the initial, you know, per or excuse me, the initial purchase of that property, um, you know, had a you had a minimum criteria on at least on acreage, and then you know, there's there's always economics for for everything um, in life, you know, whether whether you can afford something or 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 you can't, and how, how you make that how you make that work. Um, so the next, I, I heard you mention timber and it was, you know, the property was almost entirely to have timber on it. And so that sounded like a, a main portion of a, a revenue driver to allow you to, to continue to enhance and develop that plan all the while, you know, growing whitetails, um, can you can you talk about that the timbering process and how you kind of how you look at that um, on a more long term um, kind of vision? Yeah, uh, certainly we had other uh, sources of of income outside of that that was driving this. Um, the timber certainly helped. Um, so yeah, that that that's something I, you know I, I look at it from the habitat standpoint, but it obviously was a, a income driver as well. Um, we, in, the way I look at our timber now, which has kind of, kind of morphed or evolved to what it is today. Um, we're at a place now where, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try and focus on the, on the 600 acre high fence property. Um, we have an additional property that's all part of this, but if I'm looking at our 600 acres, that we have behind fence. Um, I'm looking at something that looks probably every five to seven years of doing a cut and doing a rotation of roughly six to 8% of, of the total property. It's, it's kind of what it falls into when I look at it. So I'm trying to do anywhere from 30 to 50 acre cuts. Um, number one is when I'm looking at it from a habitat standpoint, from a food source standpoint, from a cover standpoint, those other cuts that we did, um, which would be, we're in 2020, 2007, 16, 17. Um, that's the cuts I was talking about that were done uh, last on the preserve. And they, when they start getting to six, seven, eight years old, they're going to start to lose their uh, food value. It's going to start to get to saplings that are, you know, two, three inches in diameter. They're going to start to shade out um, underneath, which, which I, we want that. I want the regeneration. I'm not going to go in and burn our cuts. It's hard to burn in Pennsylvania right now, at least on private land. Liability, I mean, you can do it on state ground, but when it's your own liability and your own money, it's, it's a big difference. So, and many of these cuts I don't want to burn. And burning would, would basically set back that, succession to where you kind of start over and you get another three, four years growth, burn it again, so on, so on. I'm not hundred percent, you know, uh, educated on the fire, but that's basically fire just setting back succession to maintain that, you know, when I say, you know, everything for a deer is going to be whatever, four or five feet and below, you know, they're not everything over six, seven feet. There's no, there's nothing for deer at that height. Um, nothing they can get to. So 
anyway, we get to that point in six, seven, eight years of that after that harvest, assuming you have good regeneration, assuming your herd density didn't destroy all that stuff, and now you're left with a barren, you know, overbrowsed yep. timber stand. Um, so that succession gets to seven, eight years old and it starts to lose value. It still has good cover value. You're still going to have deer laying it. You're still going to have fawns being born in it. You're still going to have good cover, but you're going to start losing the food value. So at that same, when that's happening, and those trees at that point might be getting 15, 16 foot tall, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, now you got to remember, I still have, I'm going to get off track. I still, in a shelter work, I still have 50% of those, those big oaks might have been, not big oaks, some of those oaks might have been, say, 14, 15, 16 inches when we did the initial cut, you know, 8, 10, 12 years down the road, they might be pushing 18, 19, 20 inch trees. And now we've given that the, the area for that canopy just to explode. So that's the goal at least. Um, and on your oak trees, that should mean they're producing more acorns the years that they do produce acorns. So you got that, that short, you know, September, October, November, you got that food source of acorns. So we didn't lose that, but we did lose the main all year round type of food source, which was that, uh, you know, under five feet type of, of habitat. So when that starts to lose its value, I want to go, I, I'd like to come in and again, how often, what it looks like is do another 30, 40 acres, roughly depending on, you know, that's yeah, 30, 40 acres. So that's cut in a year or two before that other cut is losing its full value. So once, once this new cut is done, you give it a year, two years, all of a sudden it's starting to produce all that tonnage of, of biomass, per, if you want to call it that, um, that is of value to the deer herd, of value to everything else too, but you know, let's just, we'll stick with deer. Um, so all of a sudden I got 30, 40 acres. That's, I'm always trying to maintain that 30 to 50 acres of, of um, early successional timber stands that hopefully are producing me anywhere from 500 to maybe a thousand pounds per acre of, of, of potential food sources for the deer. So um, on, on top of the food plots, on top of the supplemental feed, on, on top of the mast crops that are coming you know, in the fall. So uh, it's just part of managing food sources and cover as well. But uh, that's kind of how I think of our timber. Uh, to, back to your point of income, there's income that, that sh generally speaking, in these type of cuts, you would need, you're not going to go in and shell toward five, 10 acres and make any income because in a lot of time, or any real income, because a lot of times you're taking out your, your less valuable trees. So a lot of these trees are going, they're getting chipped. They're going to the paper mill. They're not, they're not saw logs bringing top dollar money. Some are, you know, that, that, but that's not the majority of when I'm doing these type of cuts because I'm working with timber that was probably, and I'm not a forestry expert, so you know, I'm sure people listening, if they are, they have their own opinions. There's different perspectives. You know, I'm coming from a white whitetail habitat perspective plus future uh, a timber value as well. So um, a lot of this is your, your, inferior trees you know maybe they have crooks in them maybe they're bent maybe they're you know they're just not the best trees in the stand but at the same time you got to take some of your best trees in the stand because if you have two gorgeous trees within 10 feet of each other you got to pick one 
that, that's kind of how we think of it. Like, you know, one's got to go, one stand if they're the exact same tree. So you do have some good salt oaks. But so, so when you do 30, 40, 50 acres, you start um, seeing a little bit of uh, increased value, even if they are chipping it. Just have to have the right company that can, can handle that, um, that does that type of work. Um, you know, a lot of our trees last year went to the company we work with. Um, they're big and, and they do a lot of land clearing and, and they do, um, they're diversified from, from my understanding of, of what I see. So they got mulch products, they got firewood. And when I say firewood, it's not a guy with a little firewood splitter. They got, they got two, two, um, gigantic machines, op, uh, mechanical operated machines where these guys are putting logs down, splitting them, sorting them all by machine. And it's going right into a kiln dry, two big giant kilns, you know, size of my barns out here. So it's, it's a, you know, and they're probably doing, we're getting away off topic, but you know, grocery stores, you see all those little bundles and stuff like that. They're, they're doing those by the tractor trailer loads. So they can, they can, they can make some value out of these trees by doing that or by chipping it and take it to the paper mills. If it's not a, um, a saw log type of tree. So it's not, I guess the point is it, it's, there's differences in the, amount of income per acre that you're going to get depending on what you're cutting, how you're cutting it. You know, if I go in and clear cut it, which we do some small clear cuts in these cuts, um, you know, your price per acre is going to increase. And I'm speaking generally, I'm not following timber prices to the T because I'll look at it trends and, and talk to people that know better than I do um, and try to work with a good forester that we can trust that can lead us in the right direction. But um, generally speaking, that's kind of how we're looking at it. Um, so, so yeah, there is an increase. There's income produced off of that. Uh, it'd be nice to start putting some of that in savings, but a lot of that just goes right back into what, what we're doing right now to get this place um, where we want to be. We're, we're nowhere, we're heading towards where we want to be, but we've got a lot, lot to do to get to where we want to be. Um, going back to one of your first things, I appreciate your kind words of saying, you know, we're one of the premier destinations for what, mm. premier destinations, but we've only been in business a few years. And that is one of our goals is to be uh, one of the top quality, you know, Northeast, whitetail destinations um or in the country you know but uh we we have some so a few more steps to uh sure to keep heading in that direction yeah and there's always there's always a, a growing process and and uh hopefully i mean i i say this nicely i hope you guys never reach maturation you continue to develop and and make things better and better and better so um no i i've had the i've had the opportunity to, to tour the property with you and and see some of the quality of the animals and such. So it wasn't, wasn't hard for, for me to say that. Um, back on the, uh, yeah, back on the, uh, the timber. So you have this, um, you have this chunk of ground, you, you mentioned 600 acres, that's a high fence and you're managing, you know, a percentage six to 10% of the, the timber each year. Is there, I mean, are these timber stands like right next to each other? Are they kind of, do you, do you stagger them strategically on the property? Because obviously there's, there's, you know, the, the, the number one goal is animal, you know, it's for the animals, it's animal movement, it's, it's hunting. Um, sure. So, I'm not ignoring you. I'm, I, yeah. No, that's, I have these that I draw out and I don't have one handy. I thought I would. Um, so how does, but yeah, how, does how does that relate to um, how you, how you look at that? So I'll take a step back quick on timber management with our field. So we started by saying that this property was mainly timber covered, whether it was certain pine plantations, but I'm just throwing quick numbers out. 70, 80% of the property was mixed hardwood timber. Um, 
like I said, some was cut real hard maybe 50, 60 years ago. So we were working with a bunch of stands that were 12 to 15 inch trees. And this is, um, this is most of PA, just for everybody listening. This is how the, the predominant sure. part of PA is. This, is. this state is a timber state. It's always been a timber state. There's tons of rich history here. I know like in, at the turn of the turn of the century where I live in Williamsport, it was the number one timber city in the, in the state. Um, sure. And maybe in the East, it's just, it was, it was a monster. They floated these logs down the Susquehanna and uh, you know, that's just, that, that was life back then. So sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to add no, a little it, context. My learning process with some of the foresters I worked with, you know, um, I keep saying I, it's, it's my family and I, but I have the responsibilities of, of managing this property. But um, when I started working with some of these foresters and like, I'm sure I annoyed the, sh the crap out of some <laughs> of them, but uh, yeah, I was just asking questions. I mean, I, I, for me, that's kind of how I learn better. Just ask professionals and, and then go back and research and look and do all that, you know, dig into it. But what, what I had learned and seen was this property was continually high graded. And what they, what I, I believe what they mean when they say that is the best trees were always taken. So they come into a stand and they would take the best saw log trees they could find and they leave the junk. So years and years and years of doing that, it, it, it's, it's like, and there's a lot of deer breeders probably on this listening to this podcast. It's like breeding the shittiest genetics constantly, constantly, constantly. What are you going to end up with? Shitty deer. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so then you have to turn that management around is what we're trying to do. Um, not turn it around, but rebuild a forest in a sense or rebuild good timber. And, you know, in my, I always sit back and say, you know, if, if hopefully, when I'm 70, 80 years old, if I make it that long, that we still, we, my family still owns this property. And my goal is when I am that age to be going out there and looking at some 24, 25, 26 inch oak trees. Yes. Will I cut some big ones? Yes. But I always want to leave just, just my goal. You know, if, if I have kids or the next generation, whatever that is, whatever they want to do, that's, that's their time and their turn to, to make that decision. But I'd like to get to a point of growing some, some really nice, big, mature, timber on here as well all while managing it though not just saying let nature take its course we're not going to do any management and and you know i don't even want to get into that subject but um what was the point Back oh, to the so geog we, geography of these different cuts um this is all rolling ridges rolling hills uh we don't have any real big flat bottoms you know we do have some small uh two three acre fields in our bottoms but they're long strips they're in the valleys um so we're rolling timber. So yes, I, um, when I look forward at how we're going to continue to do our cuts, there's going to be strategy implemented into that. It's not just going to be, okay, let's just go do this thing. So we feel like it's, you know, whatever. So, um, right now I'm looking at, uh, the next cut will probably be roughly in that 40 acre range. About 25 acres will be uh, on, on the northwest side of the, of the preserve. And about 15 acres is going to be on the extreme, the extreme opposite end. Um, I, and again, these hillsides and what I'm considering our stands, they all are interconnected in a sense. But when I look at my logging roads, when I look at our four-wheeler trails, I start making these little barriers in my head and say, okay, this is going to be a cut. You know, this, this 
this logging road and this four-wheeler trail, there might be 25 acres in between. Let's make that our barriers, which helps marking it, helps telling the logger, hey, okay, although it's marked, you definitely don't go across this logging road, you know, or, or you definitely don't go across this trail. You know, that's our barriers. So I start like kind of in my head or on, on my maps, just, just, just outlining. Here's, here's a good stand. Now, maybe that stand is 60 acres that turns into three different cuts over the next 15, 20 years, but it's a, it's a good chunk of timber. Um, there's also stands that, I've, that, I've, that we've circled, that we've agreed on, that we will never cut. Or I shouldn't say we'll never cut. There's no plans to cut it anytime in the next 20, 30 years. A lot of those are steep hillsides. We're not willing to go in and um, cut roads into those hillsides or just risk erosion risk potentially a bad logger which we've kind of learned our lesson on that but you know coming in and, and tearing those hillsides apart where there's ruts there's this there's that like that there's nothing that pisses me off more than than stuff getting tore up you know and that's a learning lesson um so yeah and when i say i'm separating those is because i don't want to do a 10 if i went in and did a five acre cut let's say um whether it's a, a shelter word or even let's say it's a clear cut that five acres the reality is I'm trying to run, I don't want to say high deer numbers, but I'm trying to maximize my deer numbers so we can maximize opportunity on the hunters that we can bring in each year to our property. Yes, we have a breeding program. Yes, we're stocking some deer, um, but we're growing deer on the property too. You know, not two, we're growing deer on that property. There's fawns being born. There's bucks that are button bucks that were released or yearling bucks. So these deer are growing. They're not, they're not going in and being harvested you know, the same month that they're released or the same year that they're released in many cases. So they're, that's where the challenge starts coming in. So you start having this population of deer in there and I'm trying to maximize the amount of deer I can have in there with the amount of, frankly, food I can produce for those deer from a native habitat, from a food plot, from a, a supplemental food standpoint. Like again, supplemental food needs to be the last in line, um, but it's super important. Um, so if I did a five acre cut, like I'm talking about, and let's just say on that 600 acres, I have 75 deer going into fall. So that's, you know, we're, we're, if I do five acres, there's not a chance of that clear cut regenerating to the quality that I would like to see it do it because what's going to happen. They're going to, there's, there's just going to be, the deer are going to hover to that certain times of the year, especially spring, summer, then you get into winter when they need winter browse. So basically, I'm not producing enough, I say tonnage, there's maybe other words. I don't feel like I'm producing enough food to outcompete the browse competition that those deer are going to put on. So if I can go 15 acres over here and 25 acres over here, and now, now I have, what am I saying, 40 acres of timber cuts that are all coming up at the same time, I kind of I hope the idea is I'm kind of flooding uh, those deer with food so that they're not over browsing it where I still, I still, I might see a, a slower, uh, rate of regeneration, but I still think I'm going to get the regeneration that I'm looking for in my timber stands. Right. Um, so that's kind of the strategy of, of spacing them out and cutting enough to provide, uh, so they don't get, so they don't get over browse, you know? And, and again, I'm not a, uh, I kind of look and see and observe. Um, maybe I should be doing more technical data and 
all that kind of stuff, but you know, time's a limiting factor. So like when I say that, like, should I be taking, should I be fencing off a little circle or then seeing what the browse effect is and this and that I'm just observing. If I see, see that a cut's getting over browse to, to, to what my observations and my learning has told me over the years, uh, there's a simple answer to that. And I shoot more deer. Um, and so that's kind of how I do it. And it's also, also part of this is I have right now we have three major fields. Um, we have, what do I got? Seven, eight actual fields in a property, but I got three major, uh, you know, five to seven acre fields. And they're, you know, to keep it simple, one's on the west, one's in the center, one's on the east, kind of. But they're, they're separated, and there's some small pl food plots, you know, within a couple hundred yards of, of those big main fields. But my timber, I, I kind of am working around those fields too. So like you have, say I have three major blocks of the property separated. So I got this big six acre field, which isn't, you know, it's, it's big relative to what we're doing. It's not like a 30, 50, 100 acre <laughs> ag field, but it's a, yeah. it's a substantial field where I'm, I'm not planting crops to harvest. I'm planting fields to produce food for our deer. Um, none of this is, is harvested at this point, nor do I see any of it being- They're all you know, perennial, perennial crops. Uh, they're not perennials, but they're, they're, they're uh, perennials and annuals, but nothing's being harvested. Nothing's being planted to be combined and, and sold off the property. Gotcha. It's all, be, you know, that's a whole different subject of how we plant my philosophy on that. But uh, sure. so you'll sit and you'll be looking at a six acre field sitting in one of our hunting blinds and you may be looking to your, to your East or to your right. And you're looking at, you can't see it all. Maybe it's, maybe you're looking at five acres of a 20 acre cut. That's, you know, two to three feet tall in regeneration. Um, that the deer can browse at, they can come to the field, which is right next to that, which then somewhere in that vicinity, I'm gonna have a supplemental feeder too, which that's spacing and density and all that. They, I kind of try to manage that as well. Um, so these deer kind of don't have to travel all over the place looking for food. You know, it kind of sets up quadrants if you want to say where you know the, this doe has fawns here she's going to hang out there and she has everything she needs there's a pond there's a water source there's something that she you know hopefully can raise that fawn in, in, a, in a 50 acre square i'm just throwing numbers out there but and, sure. and never have to uh leave that 50 acre or 100 acre block um to look for resources you know to raise that fawn or to raise you know keep herself healthy so um yeah, the timber strategy is space it out, cut enough, um, and try and integrate it around your 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 food plots as well. Food nice. plots, fields, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, so so I think um, you know there's this this interesting kind of dynamic that happens on on properties like this where you have this ability to really intensely manage your timber, but you can also um, add in food plots supplemental food um, and these deer have really a plethora of um, variety number one in their diet but also in their in their habitat which you know anybody that understands deer understands that stress generally is really the key component in raising quality quality deer is to have that really low stress on them and 
if if their nutrition and diet is taken care of with that variety, as well as the habitat where they feel uh, comfortable, whether that be for does fawning out or for you know bucks, um, you know pre pre rut before they get all crazy and start uh, working does all over. Um, that's that's really important. So I I, I kind of like that idea of having the you know your if if you will your food plot in the center and then have these transitions out into these timber cuts, um, which have obviously a, a, a different vegetation level to them. And then, you know, hard, you know, bigger hardwoods around them or some pines and, and uh, it sounds like a, a really nice dynamic. Um, Another thing, and I don't want to keep going down rabbit holes, just stuff that rolls through my head when I'm, when I'm out on the property looking at stuff, when you do these timber cuts too, um, you want to be looking at your slopes and the, uh, what's the what's the word what's the word i'm looking for is it is it on a, is it on a south slope a north slope east west slope um you know you think about uh and again this is deer management stuff i mean there's guys that talk about it all the time i'm not a professional i just i just try and implement what the professionals you know i learned from but uh you know you look if you do a cut you might want to make sure that hey you you have someone that make sure you cut some of this southern slope of this of this track that you're or this cut that you're looking at doing um you get into january february uh even early march and you get those brutal cold days i mean what's better than a deer going to lay he still has some cover around him because it's starting to regenerate but he's but the sun's right on top and just beating down on him keeping them deer warm vice versa leave some north slopes that are mature timber so we get hot 90 100 degree days in the summer they can go in these these northern slopes it's all shaded I mean, you walk it, walk walk into a field and then walk into the timber on a ninety degree day. Where do you want to be? You want to be in the shade. Mm. Um, you know, you, you can translate that into a, a breeder pen scenario. You know, you want shelter. You want shade in the summertime. Same time, I think you'd want some sunshine in the wintertime as well. You know, just different things to think about. You can't always get them all right, but it should be uh, in your mind when you're you're thinking of of management. So, so. Um, and. And I don't know if this is something that that you've you've thought about um, or not. You know, I I, I try to look at um, a lot of different types of agriculture and regeneration and livestock management and so on and so forth. And the uh, I, I know you and I have touched on this before. The gentleman um, Alan Savory has taken cattle and used them to regenerate property before. Um, do do you? Do you think there will be a time or has there been discussions maybe internally uh, with your, your business about incorporating some cattle into a property to, to take on some of the vegetation that the deer don't necessarily want or, or maybe things like that? Um, has there been thoughts about it? Yeah. Has there been times I said I'm going to do it? Yes. Um, <laughs> right now, my answer is no. <laughs> gotcha. Um, I... Uh, yeah, it's a whole nother discussion. Um, I come from a farming background. We have, my family has cattle back East as well, but um, there, it almost have to be two very different things for me. You know, I'd almost have to look at the cattle and the pastures and the, and the setup of that as its own thing. Mm. Could deer be incorporated into that? But I, yeah, but to the intensity of what I think I'm trying to do on our preserve, I think cattle would get in the way. Gotcha. My, my perspective. Yeah, no, I we don't, yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. have to go down that rabbit hole. It's okay. <laughs> but when you, when you talk about, it's interesting because I know we, we've 
talked about this and you talk about Alan Savory and regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. and all that, but I have, uh, when it comes to our fields and I don't know if you want to go here yet, but it's, it's, you know, when I was in college and high school, I was reading because I was hunting and because food plots was a big craze, you know, I was, I was reading books on food plots and this and that. So that what I should have been doing is reading books on agriculture and books on, you know, whatever agriculture based rather than hunting, trying to be agriculture. If you want to say that with, with the food plot stuff, which not, nothing wrong with the food plot, but I, I've, I've come to a point now where when I'm thinking of my fields and my, and my plantings for the deer and the food sources, it's all based a lot on cover cropping systems that farmers are doing in their, in, in some of their fields now, except I don't have a cash crop or at least I'm not planning for a cash crop. I'm just rotating cover crops and mixes where, uh, you're, you're not going to come to our, our property and see a monoculture of corn. You're not going to come to our property and see a monoculture of uh, soybeans. Um, you know, I think there is, and certainly was a mindset of, Oh, deer food plots, clover, soybeans and corn, you know, and easy to grow roundup ready crops. You know, it, I shouldn't say easy to grow, but generally speaking, um, <laughs> I used to look at it that way too. I don't look at it that way at all anymore. I mean, it'd be, it'd be interesting to try and go back into my head when I was a late teenager and early twenties. Um, the way I think about what we're doing now is like a whole completely different mindset, completely different management philosophy. So, um, you know, some of the regenerative agriculture guys like, uh, uh, like a Gabe Brown, if you YouTube these guys and, and what they're doing with their no-till and their, and their cover crops, uh, uh, there's another guy in Ohio. I can't think of his name right now, but there's these guys online who are, they're, they're planting 17, 18, 20 way mixes, which means 20 different species in one field. Now it's a cover crop and they're trying to preserve nutrients, produce nutrients. They're trying to reduce their uh, outside inputs from a nutrient standpoint, which is helping their soil. And it's a whole different you know thing, but, that's how I think of my fields now, um, especially where I'm up high on these hills and I got this shale soil, it drains out quickly. When I get into network right now, especially, especially beginning of July, end of June, we went through a dry spell for about three weeks yep. and up on these hills, you notice it within six, seven days without rain, you're seeing a big difference. So how can I, how can I retain moisture up on these hills and these fields? How can I maybe build organic matter? How can I, you know, or, or, or sometimes it's not doing anything. It's letting a crop mature until midsummer. Like I just planted uh, a, a mix of brassicas and clover in the two of our big fields. And um, if I would have went in there in June or end of May and tried to plant corn or soybeans, they'd be six inches tall and dead right now. Mm. You know, so it just learning what you can and can't do is, is especially for me on this individual piece of property. Uh, is very important to how we manage, you know, those fields and that segment of our food sources. So I don't know where we are, where we were with that, but. No, that's perfect. Um, okay. So we've, we've established that um, the timber has value, um, not only in a monetary sense to help, you know, subsidize um, property and such, but also, um, to the, the animals themselves through feed, feed sources. So 
we've talked about that. We've talked about kind of the geographical locations of these timber cuts, uh, managing them on a, on a staged and tiered basis um, throughout time. So you're, you're getting maximum output for the animals them, themselves to take advantage of those cuts. Um, so I, you know, let's just, if we, if we go from there and we say, okay, we're, we're diving in to take the next step, the fence is up and we've, we've put deer in this piece of property. Let's jump over and talk about herd management. So how do you, how do you look at that? I guess, big picture, and then we can kind of get into some more specifics. So, you know, number of does you want to run, um, you know, age structure of bucks, you know, hunting, calling, the, the whole works. So, yeah, that's a broad yeah, question. Um, yeah, it is. You can, you can, you can do whatever yeah, you want. Um, n- number one, when, when we, when we, in Pennsylvania, when you fence a completely enclose a piece of property to create a ranch, a preserve, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's, it's, to us, it's just a, it's a, it's a private whitetail property. Um, so, and what that means is we're, we're going to reestablish a private herd. So you know, guys will complain and argue and we've seen on the political side, you know, this is private ownership. Love it, hate it. I don't care. I love it. You know, but it's a um, it's private ownership. So when you do that, you have to you have to basically you have to remove any wild. I hate the word wild, but you know what I mean. Any any state owned deer. Those wild deer running around, they're owned by the state. They're owned by the game fish. They're owned by the people. There, you know, we got the whole North American wildlife model that we can yeah. discuss at a later time. But um, uh, so you, you don't own those deer. And, and I'm cool with that. I'm fine. I understand that idea of it. So you got to get those out of there. So we make our attempts to get them out of there. Um, when it's all said and done, you're left with a property, a high fence, some goals, and zero deer. So um, every landowner can decide, or every high fence owner, whatever you want to say, property owner, can decide what they want to do, how they want to manage, how they want to bring in deer, what they want to do from a hunting perspective, all that. What we what we decided, we we want to have a a a natural breeding population of whitetails with the with the genetics that are capable of producing two hundred inch plus bucks by the time they're three four years old. Um, hope, Goal is three, but some bucks are going to make it to four. Some might make it to five, you know, but um, we're going to start selecting bucks for harvest at three years old. So anyway, kind of our goal. And there's supplement along with that. We, we have a breeding facility. Um, we chose to, which sometimes I often wonder this was a good or bad decision, but we, we chose to build our own breeding herd. And we've been doing that since 2000. Our first fawns were born on our original farm down my dad's house in 2008. So, so 12 years now, we've been raising deer, um, growing a breeding herd. We've sold deer. We've done the whole, you know, sold bucks, sold those, sold fawns. Um, certainly some restrictions have came in on us from the CWD front that have halted a lot of, of that. But fortunately for us, which um, I say fortunately because I don't think you know, there'd be a different cir- circumstance right now 
if we didn't, we, our goals weren't with our hunting property. So the way I looked at it is when we, when we got this place fenced is I wanted to get bread does out there and I wanted to get some young bucks out there. But at the same time, I had some, you know, two, three-year-old bucks that we put out there as well um, to start this, this, uh, start a new herd. Re, you know, best way to say is we're reestablishing a whitetail herd on our private preserve. So that, the whole genetic selection, all that, um, you know, the first, in the beginning here, I, um, I probably wasn't as selective as I want to be moving forward in what animals go in there. Um, I am looking at our preserve as, if, if, if I'm taking this time and dedication to, to building a breeding herd that is supposed to be, my goal is it's, it's supposed to be producing me whatever that vision is for what I think, not the perfect deer, but groups of deer that when I trans, when I, when, when they get, when you translate that over to the preserve, it, it should be a, a, it's just a replica, but now they're, they're, they're breeding on their own. They're doing their own thing. Um, there is some supplement of older bucks in there as well, but it, if I'm putting all that work into my breeding herd and producing these superior animals, well, those superior animals need to be going into that preserve. That's the whole point. I think, in, in many instances, and again, this is, everyone has their own thing. I'm not, I'm not judging, criticizing anything. But I think in many instances, we talk about this, sometimes preserves were looked at as a place for insuperior, or insuperior, is that a word? Uh, inferior? Non inferior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I need Josh to help me with vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, inferior animals, a place for inferior animals to go. Hmm. Um, would you agree with that? Like in a sense, it seemed like, especially on your female side. Yeah. So, so the, you know, as our, our breeding industry market developed, it was, it was apparent that we, we as an industry didn't believe in what every other livestock industry believed in that there is call animals. So a call animal would be, you know, an animal that has uh, potentially lived a, a long life but is no longer maybe fertile in the case of a doe to have fawns or uh, an animal that no longer carries the level of genetic um, genetics that we'd like to see because we've, we've uh, bred that animal for multiple years and have subsequent generations of what we consider superior genetics to that particular one. So the beauty of the, the beauty of the white-tailed deer, at least, at least to me, is that number one, it has value in the males through hunting, but the females have value as well. Um, but they're a food source. They're just such a high quality um, protein source. And, you know, more, more and more as I get, um, as I get older and I continue to eat more wild game, um, I, not that I don't love beef, give me a big, big old, you know, 24 ounce, uh, two inch thick ribeye and I will eat it all fat gristle, the whole works. But if I, you if, will. yes, I will. And, 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 and I'll eat two of those just, uh, if anybody <laughs> wants to do it, come on down. If I do, maybe you can uh, pay for the steaks. Cause I, I really don't want that hundred dollar bill, but anyway, um, you know, on a, on a consistent basis, you know, eating, um, 
you know, exotics and, and wild game, that, that taste and profile for me has just, it's, it's been really good. And I, I think there's a lot of benefits from a health standpoint. Anyway. Um, yeah. When you, when you take, when you take, um, and you try to develop a herd like you're talking about and you're, you're simply putting inferior animals in there, not having that base stock to work from is no good. So um, I, I think you're spot on. You, you want the highest quality animals to enter the ranch um, and, 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 and live and, and prosper out there as opposed to the lowest quality. Sure. And it's, it's certainly a balance when, you know, if you look at your breeding herd and we're getting into the depths of breeding and stocking and all that, but um, you, you, if I'm trying to uh, increase the number of a certain female line or something like that, you know, if I get one female out of her and I want her in the breeding herd, well, guess where she's staying? She's staying in the breeding herd. But it doesn't mean that there's other offspring that um, I just want quality going into there. It has to be quality that the dough, the bread dough going into our preserve is not an inferior animal. It needs, it's going in there for a purpose. That's, that's the number one drop fawns onto that preserve that were, she was bred in the breeding facility. I want it's, it's diversifying my genetics on that preserve, maybe increasing a certain look or trade or however you want to look at it that I want to continue to put in there. Um, and then after she drops the fawns the first, the first spring, I want her to breed again and she can be bred to, this is a perfect dream, but she's bred to, there's no control anymore. I don't want to say they're wild, but they, they, they're just like a wild deer. There's, there might be, that poor girl might have four or five bucks chasing her when she comes in the heat in November. And we don't know who's going to breed her. At that point, it's, I don't care. It's out of my control. But when she does drop fawns again, the subsequent years after that, number one, I want them to be healthy. I want her to be able to, to handle it on her own. And I want her to be a good mom when she raises those fawns. Um, and I, hopefully the bucks produced out of that are of the traits that not, not hopefully they will be of the traits I've put in there, but hopefully it's all leading towards a, a certain quality of deer. You know, that might be three or four different types that I'm trying to, to, to replicate on the preserve from our breeding herds, but um, she needs to do that. Um, so yeah, I, 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 you touched on a couple points there that I think are, are interesting. And for, for folks that are, are listening that are outside of the, the servant industry or the servant farmed industry, um, and, and looking at this and saying, well, why, why would a doe need help or, or, you know, what, what are these, what are these things that they're talking about? You know, if you, be, because, um, you know, Jared, Jared and I raised deer in, um, you know, a controlled environment. And this, this control allows us to observe things that are typically not seen by the masses out in, you know, in, in the wild, so to speak. And those are things like um, uh, females having issues with fawning, where they may have um, fawns get breached, or they may have, you know, a, a you know, just some sort of problem like dystocia or something where the fawn is too big to, to be delivered safely. Um, there's so many uh, different health concerns that we have the ability within a confined space to take care of. And when you transition that into, you know, a managed property, but without that, those tighter controls, which is, you know, a natural environment, 
you really want animals that are able to um, be able to handle those things w without any intervention because there is no intervention. Nature, nature is doing what it does at its finest. So we're able, I think one of the, the really cool things is we're able to select these really high quality superior animals and guess what? A lot of these things are inherently genetic and they, they pass on to their offspring. So I think that's one of the really kind of key and nice, nice abilities of having some history um, when we're doing these, these stocking programs into you know, a high fence ranch. You know, I don't know if we want to go here, but I guess I'm going go to go here. Any, uh, anywhere. Let's go anywhere. Another criteria, and again, I'm speaking from a more of a deer management standpoint than a deer farming standpoint. Um, another criteria I have for animals going into our preserve from a stocking perspective is zero bottle feds. Nobody will be bottle fed. Um, and I, and I, I say that because to your point of if there's somebody listening outside of our industry that sees the deer farming side of, of the private deer industry, whatever you want to call it, um, that's what I call it, you see a lot of bottle fence. Um, and when you start to translate that over to a hunting property, it's, it's, they're like, mine's gone, it's blown. Like, what do you mean? Like, what? Like, it's a pet going out there? Right. Those bottle feds are generally breeding stock and they're staying in breeding pens. They're being, you know, sold, trade, whatever. They're staying behind the fences of a deer farm, not, or, or in my opinion, they should be um, a deer farm, not a, a, a high fence managed property. Um, so that's, that's just want to get it out there. If people are listening that, you know, there's, there's a difference in, in the bottle fed animals. Um, I, I have zero tolerance for accepting any bottle fed animals to go into our, our preserve. In saying that we haven't bottle fed anything on our breeding farm for over three years because the, the 90% of our animals are going to be, shouldn't say 90%, a, a large portion of our animals, they're being bred to introduce genetics into our hunting property and hopefully in the future properties, you know, but, um, so that's just another criteria. Yeah. No, deer farming has listening to me that are deer farmers, some that are not like, sure. especially the ones who are not, that might be listening to it. Uh, there, I think there's a big uh, misconception there, you know, and I don't know if we always do the best job of trying to explain that, but uh, right. just, I just want to throw it out there. No, I think, I know yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You know, this, um, this habitat that, that Jared's talking about uh, and property is um, as close to and based on, um, his vision of a, a quality hunting property and that you know I think anybody that's that's hunted any bit of time whether that be you know whitetails in the east or you know elk, elk out west or whatever you know they have a um, they have an expectation of, of challenge and um, we're, we're simply trying to uh, explain this in a, in a way that shows number one the, the care for the animal but also um, the care care for the land and how those two how those two meet. So, um, okay. So, the, the integrity of the hunt when it comes to the hunting side of it as well. That's that's exa that's exactly right. You know, if you um, uh, <laughs> if in the day we're these deer, that's that's why we're doing it. Um, yeah. Guys, guys love hunting big deer, but it, to me, it needs to, it, yeah, the integrity needs, needs to stay there. It, it, it does, and and any um, 
anybody that thinks they're going to, you know, book a hunt with, with Jared and try to, you know, you can go try to target a specific buck, but I, I promise you there's, there's no guarantees at that place. Cause there's some, uh, there's some really pretty country and those bucks they're uh, they're pretty cagey. So, um, okay. So we have this, we have this uh, property. We've got the, a little bit of the food plots. We got this timbered, uh, it's fenced. We have the general concept of uh, how we transition uh, animals from being uh, managed for genetic selection in the deer farm and then the, um, and then the hunting property. So fences up, what's the first thing you do? How do you, how do you look at like, do you, do you take and put uh, 20 does onto the, onto the property, bread does, open does, fawns? Do you stock a couple bucks? Do you stop? I mean, how, what is, what does that look like? Um, basically initially we stocked all of our two-year-old bucks um not all of them i'm sorry ones we weren't breeding with we stocked a large majority of our two-year-old bucks okay um some three-year-old bucks and um what did i do eight to ten bread doughs okay I say eight to apartment bags but i think was it eight or was it ten but no it, it was it was it was uh i think i did five fall five spring um for ten bread doughs uh this fall is going to be some open does going in there, some younger bucks again. Um, there is a supplement of younger bucks into that preserve. Number one, for increased opportunity. It's just it is what it is, you know. Um, but it also gives them a chance not only to acclimate for a year or two, but also I don't mind if those, those two-year-old bucks should be products of what I'm trying to do in my breeding facility. So I'm hoping they go out there and breed those does that were, that, you know, were put out there years prior. Um, so when I get to that point, so say, say, okay, I don't, I'll be hundred percent honest. I'm, we're three years into this now of, of since we've closed that gate and started putting deer in the, in the property. Um, the, I'm, I'm not set on a number of, of does that I went out there yet. And when I say does, that means, you know, my mind, it's how many does are on the property having fawns each spring. Hmm. Um, I believe I'm going to end somewhere in the zone of 15 to 25. Um, right now I'm going to, I'm, I'm pushing that. I'm going to be pushing that 15 to 18 mark uh, next spring. And, and when I say that is your does are the ones reproducing. Um, I hope I can get to 25, but you know, as they, let's just say you have 20 does and let's just use one fawn for easy numbers. They, they give you one fawn that gets to a year old. So you've added 10 deer to the population. Well, as yearlings, we're not, we're generally not going to be shooting any of those. We occasionally might shoot a couple yearling does by, not by mistake, but we have a quota. So we're just going to shoot those, you know, that once we get to that point, it isn't about this doe needs to stay or that doe needs to stay. It's no 10 does need to go because that's our quota. So, but generally yearlings are all going to get to two years old. At least that's the goal. So you might lose one or two. So you got 18 two year olds now that are, that are naturally producing that herd. Now I am releasing some button bucks as a supplement, um, or yearling bucks as well. Um, with the goal of, of, you know, maybe having 20, 25 bucks for harvest each fall. Uh, is that what you mean by tapping the table when you texted me? That is what Sorry. I mean. Yes. So, so I, I sent, I, I'm watching, I'm watching Jared, we're recording on, uh, on, on zoom. So I'm, I'm watching him talk and of course he, he does what I do and talks with his hands 
except I don't I don't hit the table in front of me when I talk, so I can I don't know if you guys are gonna pick it up on the audio or not, but he's uh, he's playing his drums over there while he's talking to this me. What he meant. I, <laughs> yeah, I sent him a I sent him a quick text and told him to stop My hitting pleasure. the table. So. Um, so, uh, you know, in my mind with the supplement, with the introduction of new does, um, you know, I'm going to get to the point where I'm probably only putting, not only, I'd like to be putting five or six new fresh, if you want to call it mm. genetics through the does five to six on the property each year. Um, so there's obviously a compounding factor as they start to reproduce and controlling those numbers. Um, also have the does in the breeding herd working for us as well. Um, but, you know, I, I don't see on 600, 600 acres isn't quite a square mile, but you know, if you think square miles, I don't really see doing more than, you know, say in a ballpark of 60 to 80 deer per square mile. Some guys are like, holy shit, that's a lot of deer for mountain ground, but I, we're, we're managing this place. I mean, like I just talked about our food sources and all mm -hmm. we're doing, um, you know, and I might see that 80 is too high. Um, I might see, you know, that it's, that's, we can do that. You know, some years might be different, you know, you get certain rainfalls, you get see how our timbers regenerated. Maybe we did a 70 acre timber cut. Hey, I can do that 80, 85 deer. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to be happy, healthy. Habitat's going to be healthy, happy, you know? Um, so when I get to that magic spot, you know, I'll still have a breeding herd. I still want to bring genetics in. I still want to uh, supplement some bucks into that, to that ranch as well. Um, but like I said, when I supplement the bucks, the majority of all those bucks are going to be in there for at least a year, most probably two years before they're even thought about being targeted for harvest. Um, so, what that population looks like is going to evolve as I start to observe our habitat, what it looks like. But, um, you know, from a financial end, okay, there's, there's, there's that dream world of, oh, there'd be, you know, everything looking perfect. The, the timber's looking great. The food plots are looking great. The deer are looking great. But if we're not paying our bills and paying ourselves, we're, what's this for? So um, not what's it for. We can't afford to do it, you know? Uh, right. So there's a certain, and that'll adjust each year for, for us as well. We'll see what young bucks are coming up. And, but there's, there's a certain amount of hunts we need to run at a certain average price to make this whole thing keep working, you know. And the intensity of our management, the genetics, the habitat, the mortgage, the lodging, uh, the tree stands, the, the rangers we run around in, the tractors, the discs, the planters, you know, this isn't – and no, this is no disrespect, but this isn't a um, – 80, 100 acres that you are managing for fun, granted, it's fun, but uh, it's a business too. So it, it has to work. The numbers have to work too. So there's, there's the management of that too. Um, sometimes, you know, I don't want to, the goal is not to push our numbers too much where we start seeing a detriment in the quality of our hunting, the quality of our uh, property, and certainly the quality of our animals. Um, so there's all those things we're trying to bounce and figure out and what's the best way to do it because uh, when our hunters come here, I want them to, this sounds so cliche, but I want them to have a, a, an experience of, of a lifetime. Um, and I want to be able to replicate that for them every year. You know, is, is it, if we grow, if, if we're fortunate enough to keep, to keep growing <clears throat> and add to this property, 
I mean, I'd love to have 1,500 acres on the fence. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to attach to this place, take the center fence down and have 1,500 continuous acres, you know. Um, or maybe it's we, that happens and who knows, maybe 30 years we're talking, we got three properties we're hunting. So I can continue to give these guys, you know, if guy hunts for us three, four years, it, 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 I, I want guys to have new experiences. They're sitting in a new stand or a new field we built or a new cut we just did, you know. Um, they're not coming and sitting at the, looking at the same little two-acre food plot every year, sitting in the same bond. No one, no one's going to come back five, six, seven years for that type of um, experience, you know. At the same time, I'm getting way deep in it. You want to? I don't. I don't want hunters. When you come to our place, I don't want you to ever feel you're just a number. You know, we see this so often in other businesses, but it's it's a. Uh, and I'm not talking just hunting. I'm talking anything, but like service you know it all comes down to service uh i think you know my family was in other businesses where i think they grew so successful and taught me and, and, and my siblings and, and my cousins and friends and family um service is what made them successful um so i, I just want to keep the quality there for our hunters that that's priority and um you know if i keep a very high standard of what i consider quality i hope that trickles down to my hunters seeing seeing the same thing so sure um, so I, I want to, I want to end this, um, conversation on my favorite thing to discuss and that's deer. Um, I got all the time. Fun now. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when you, um, when you guys are, are out there and you're, you're trying to, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're managing our, our resource out on your ranch for, the the number one thing is is for hunting and we want big bodies on our bucks and we want big antlers um when you when you're when you're looking at those animals obviously you're you, you know you're you're trying to manage an age structure um is there you know what types of, of criteria are you looking for in the, in particular deer to say hey you know that buck is a is a stud we're we're not going to shoot him this year like that deer needs to we want him to breed we'll target him when he gets older or is there certain antler characteristics or physical attributions to the animals like what are what are the some of those things you look for and and how do you how do you wait that decision um to say you know no we're not gonna we're not gonna hunt maybe one of the the top three bucks on the property this year because we want him to breed Sure. Uh, <laughs> I'll say where I'm at right now with my thought process on that. So I don't necessarily see me not shooting a buck because I want him to breed. Um, what I mean by that is I'm hoping he bred the years prior by the time I make a decision that he's going to be targeted anyway. So one huge advantage and there, there, there's no there's no mistake about this one huge advantage is we have and have had the ability to in, introduce genetics into this property mm. if you if you step aside and take i don't i might get criticized here a little bit i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna take a ten thousand acre ranch in, in south texas dream world you know no fences wild deer or native deer let's call them native deer native deer and they are attempting, which I think is very hard in a while, but they're attempting to uh, 
manipulate or, or increase the amount of, of, of a certain type of genetics. So they're going to have a three-year-old buck that, let's just call them a 24-inch wide, six-by-six, six, super long beam, super long tines, the deer we all kind of would dream of, of shooting. Sure. At least I would dream of shooting. Yeah. Um, or and he's three years old, and he's 170 inches, say. Well, they're, he's already off limits for them because they want him to continue to breed, which is understa understandable. But he might be one of 100, and the other 99 are of uh, – what's the word I'm looking for again? Inferior. Inferior <laughs> genetics where – Flip that back to our high fence where I now I've had control of my or have been allowed to control at least the genetic baseline that a larger percentage of my bucks should be reaching that quality compared to the free range where maybe only one percent is reaching that perfect deer. So, so if the, I don't know if that makes any sense, but in saying that. Three years old is a criteria for us right now. That might increase to four. But if he's not three years old, he's not even being considered <clears throat> for harvest. Um, occasionally, I might say a buck's three, and he is exceptional. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to let him breed one more year. But generally, three years old is going to be the criteria. What that allows me to do, too, is increase my opportunity. Um, it, it allows me to, instead of waiting a whole other generation, which means, let's just say there's 25 bucks on a property. That means I'm adding, if I wait till four, I'm adding another 25 deer to that herd density. If I can start targeting them at three and say we get them to 180 inches by three, 200 inches by three, which some listeners who are not involved in their industry probably think that's crazy, but, but we can do that with our genetics. Um, <clears throat> so generally speaking, three years old is going to be the criteria. That's going to be where we start. And then it just depends on what class of hunt you're on, you know. Um, that's we don't have to get into that now but you know two, two to three classes of hunts that i do generally based on size but also there's a look component and quality you know is, is that animal just the perfect animal is he in the top five percent of that herd each year that's a different animal than my average hunt um but we'll still target him and we still hope we can get a hunter to come in and harvest him in saying that though i'm not i'm not i'm not having 20 deer in a property and bringing 20 hunters in and we're shooting 20 deer right. i might have 25 deer on the property or bringing 20 hunters in so some of these bucks are going to get to four years old. Some are going to get to five. Some are going to get to six, just like they do in the wild, except, you know, or in a, in a native non-fenced property if you're managing it. Mm -hmm. But um, we're still starting to target them at three years old. I think the biggest challenge, especially when I, you know, again, I, I'll have more experience five years down the road. We should do the same conversation and see where I'm at then. But yeah. um, you bring, you, you sell somebody to come and spend their hard-earned money. These are not cheap hunts. No one's, I'm not hiding that fact. Like it's, it costs a lot to manage the way we do. So you want, you better have that high quality experience. You better have good gear. You better have all those good things, but you want guys to have fun too. But when, um, lost my train of thought. When those guys, where was I? Remind me. Uh, Going three different. Oh, the, sorry. I know <laughs> you convince a guy who's never hunted behind a fence. Okay. Yeah. This happens times after this. And you sold them this, this, this hunt, this, this experience, this, they're coming to spend three, four five days to hunt with you. And, um, at least us, I'm talking about us particularly. Um, I think that if they've never hunted behind 
or they've not, never hunted on a property like this that's managed with a high fence, that's managing their genetics, that has had some sort of control on what they can introduce onto these properties. Um, they see a 160 inch two-year-old, say 10 point, mm. 170 inch two-year-old 10 point. It's like, whoa, they've never seen, they may have never seen a deer of that quality. And they may want to grab that gun and pull the trigger right away. They can't because he's two. So I think there's a challenge of, of saying, of, of getting those guys to realize that, hey, the, the genetic baseline of what we have in these deer is some of these deer might be 160, 170, 180 inch, two-year-old bucks. That, that, that's going to be, for me and my herd, that's going to be the upper echelon. You know, I'm going to have one, 130s to 160s mostly of my, of my good-looking, generally typical two-year-olds. Sure. Um, but when those deer jump, what guys got to understand is I give those deer one year. We were just talking about this yesterday or day before. When you give those deer one more year, they have the potential to be that 220, that 230, that, two, that 210. Um, now, not everyone's on that hunt, and not every deer will make that. But there's almost that shock factor of if you've ne never – now, you get ex experienced guys who've hunted these places, they'll understand. But having guy, making guys have the self-control – and hoping they hoping they don't get angry at me because they spent all this money. And you can't let me. You're not gonna let me shoot that deer. Well, no, that's. I got to make sure they understand the management before they show up. This is not a. Um, this isn't a put and take operation. This isn't a, a pheasant farm. No, again, I, I shoot pheasants at a game sure. farm, but this isn't going out and stocking the pheasants before you get there, and uh, you go out there and shoot them. You know, two days after they've been stocked, or two yeah. hours, or whatever. Yeah. That, in those situations, so. Uh, there is a management component. Even though we're introducing deer, it doesn't mean we're introducing them for the sole purpose of being shot. And yeah, um, At least not right away. I mean, harvest is the ultimate goal. Yeah, 100%. You're right. Yeah. Not right yeah. away. <laughs> These deer have a purpose before they get shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, just I guess from, a, from a, a sales standpoint, you know, you being able to articulate the vision that you just did to the hunter beforehand creates a narrative and a story about Powder Ridge that they may have not considered before. And that's that we have a genetic base to work from. We have age structures put in place for a reason. And that, you know, there are opportunities outside of that. In this case, where you were talking about that, that 160 10 point or that 170 10.2 year old um, that are there. And, and we do this so that the populations regenerate and that we have long-term viability um, in, in our herds. So I, I think when you, when you tell hunters that that's what you're doing, I think that, that that intrigues them because a lot of guys who are, you know, I'll say true whitetail junkies, you know, guys that love whitetail deer, you know, they, they can only kind of dream of that um, because we don't, we don't really see those types of things, at least not here in the East. I mean, in Pennsylvania, I don't know. I think they sold 850,000 um, deer licenses last year. The, you know, there's a million to a million and a half deer in the state. You know, it's just that the, the deer are, they're not managed like that. The native deer are not managed like that. You know, there's, there's very it's little age structure. You know, we have antler point restrictions that yes, they, they probably, you know, inhibit people from, from harvesting younger deer, but, you know, there, it's not uncommon now to see, you know, little eight, eight point uh, yearlings. Well, they're going to get shot. That's just a fact. So it's, it's you know, the, the, the fence is the tool of control 
and that's the beauty of yeah. it. Yeah, and, and to expand on that a little bit, like from my perspective, it, it's all perspective. It's, I don't mind if a guy wants to go hunt state game lands, pay for his hunting license, um, and go shoot a year on eight point. That's, yep. He has every single right to do that. Absolutely. If that's what he needs from hunting, he needs to go do that. Yep. However, if there's a guy next to that game lands managing a thousand acres of open ground, and he's saying, I'm not going to shoot anything but four-year-old bucks, mm. which we've done and we have neighbors who do, which is awesome too. They've chosen to do that. That's how they want to manage their property. Doesn't mean, I mean, the guy who's sitting right outside of his posters on the state game line has a better <laughs> chance of shooting a big deer. But, um, you know, he, he's made that decision. Everyone has their, you know, there's public land, there's private land, there's private land that's fenced that we've decided to take even more control. Um, but it's, uh, I don't want to act like, you, you know, seems like the term trophy hunting, we've seen all this. How many times you heard people talk about this? I don't want to get into the weeds of that, but like whether it's Africa big game or the, it's got this bad name. So I don't want to act like this is all about, you know, antlers or a horn porn like the people like to call it. Hmm. But it, but it is guys like big deer. We can't just hiding behind that fact is just foolish. You know, you see certain groups trying to like get themselves away from like, Oh, we're not managing for, for big antlers. We're managing for quality habitat, quality this, which is great. But you didn't build an, in, you didn't build a hunting industry off spike bucks. You just didn't. And that's free range, high fence, whatever it is. So, um, again, I, I, I guess I'm sticking up for managing for big antler deer um, or mature deer. You know, if it's a free range property who you got to understand what that property is capable of and be willing to be okay with that. You know, on, on a free range out here, and, there's, and this is a great deer, but, you know, we might, we might kill a 150 plus inch deer, 150 inch plus deer um, that's four or five years old. You know, every other year, every year there might be one, one or two running around on a couple thousand acres in this area where I live. But generally, they're going to be 110, 115 inch four year olds mm -hmm. if, if you let them get to four years old. Um, that's all great and grand. We we just decided we want to we want something even more. Um, is it selfish? I don't I don't know what it is, but for me, it's just a passion. It's well, a passion for growing. And when, when you see when you see a 180, 200 inch deer, um, you know, chasing the doe across a five acre clover field, and and you're in a fence, you're like, oh shit, this the guy who was skeptical realizes, oh, these are deer. This is just a property behind fence and we're just managing our genetics mm -hmm. to, to a, uh, you know, more strict, more strict style. You know, we, we've changed the whole, the whole dynamic of this herd, but um, I'm getting in a, in a little yeah. groove, little hole there, but, but just, it's all perspective. And uh, my goal has always been, we, we know you and I know that maybe there's some people listening to this too, that, uh, I'm going to call them high fence haters, you know, and some of them have every right to, to hate the high fence because they've only seen a certain, uh, thing. And that might be something that just turns them off, you know, and all of a sudden, whenever there's a high fence, it means guaranteed kill on gargantuan, crazy looking deer. And, uh, some of it is industry to blame. Um, but some of it is, you know, the, the story that I'm trying to tell, and it's not just a story. When you come here, you see it's real, um, is one of management, is one of deer management, is one of taking a private piece of property where we pay all of our own bills. This isn't, you know, we, we're not selling hunting licenses like the Game Commission and make taking that money and, or, sorry, sorry, I said that wrong. We're not getting any of that hunter money from the Game Commission selling their license to help us pay for our improvements. 
So we've decided we have a big enough piece of ground. We're going to bring private deer in here, manage it the same as if there wasn't a fence, except now we're bigger genetics to attract uh, quality hunters to make an income. So hopefully this property can stay a deer property for a long, long time. Not a timbered property, not a property that's solely focused on stripping the timber off, not a property that's building houses, um, all that stuff. You know, it can be a deer and wildlife property, but thankfully due to the private, the ability to have a private deer herd, we can now reap the rewards of that income to put back in to saving this property for hopefully my lifetime, the lifetime after that, you know? Um, and I think sometimes that is, no one sees that, you know, they see, and again, notice that I don't, I'm going to get off on a tangent, but they see a deer farm along the road, which is some of our guys raising these high quality genetics that we can utilize in these properties. Um, but I think so many people think we're shooting a high fence is shooting deer on these deer farms and it's not. Mm. And, and that need, there needs to be a separation. I've, you know, they're, they're just, there needs to be more of an education. That's what we're trying to do on our side. Our own business is uh, not only have a business, but also educate, you know, when, I, when my, I've always said to dad, I, I, I'll bring any, my goal is to bring any, um, again, I'm going to use a terrible term, but a high fence hater or, or the hardcore QDMA guy that, you know, just, just sticks his nose up to a fence like he's, you know, that guy, come to my property and I'll show you. I'll show you what I'm doing. Because I'm doing everything you're doing. My goal is to do it better than you. I just happen to manage a private deer behind it, you know. Some guys hate that. They hate that we can make money off these deer and, you know, whatever. Go, go pay your own mortgage on 1,500 acres. Well, I, I don't understand the difference or that. I, I, I don't understand that argument that there's a difference between having you know the 1500 acres whether you have it or i have it and i decide to allow hunters to come in and pay a lease or i charge them to do um you know yeah. low, low fence hunts i mean tell me tell me what the difference is yeah right the, the difference is, is that, is that the deer the deer that you have are better than the ones that i have because I don't have the ability to control every aspect of the habitat management, of the genetics that are in there, that are the, the, the harvest selections, um, and, and, and those types of opportunities that are available to you. Um, and the fact that you're able to, excuse me, to maintain that, that property through those revenues of uh, timber sure. and, and, and hunting, I think is a win. And it's not, it's not me saying that um, everybody needs to hunt a high fence because they don't. God doesn't want to hunt a high fence property. He doesn't have to. And I will never force him, never try and convince him it's quote unquote, you know, better or this or that. It just, it is what it is. Hmm. And we have people who under, we're starting to get hunters and clients who understand what we do and what our goals are. And I think that's just going to continue to grow because guys, you know, there's a lot of, Guys work their ass, guys, girls, families, work their ass off. Maybe they're businessmen. Maybe they have a construction business. Maybe they have a family who's in the, in the disposal business. Or they're, they're farmers who farm, you know, big operations where they work 390 days a year. Maybe they don't have the time or, or they choose not to take the time to buy a property solely for managing for hunting. That they want to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take three to five days a year. This is going to be our hunting trip. We want to go to a place that's that's um, intensely managed, so we can have a high opportunity at success—not guaranteed, but a high opportunity at success. 
have a good time, be in a safe environment, you know, and this can be free range and this can be high fence, but it can be both. And, um, you know, I, I, some of the criticism is just, uh, I maybe understand where they start and where they were coming from at first, but it's just, um, I just want them to bring that to me when they're standing on our property and we're looking at what we're creating and, and tell me it's a bad thing because it, um, you know, I don't know if they win that argument. Maybe they will, but I'll sure create an argument to try and beat them. <laughs> um, well, I think this is discussion for me. It's not so much anger anymore as it is just, you know, because you, you, know, you get defensive when people are challenging something that you're so passionate about. Sure. I think we deal with that just in our, our I know you and I specifically in, in the industries and the segments of this industry that each of, each of us is in, but. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's our job to articulate our vision of, of what we think that, the industry is and what it should be and, and where we're going. And I, I think that, you know, with uh, Powder Ridge Outfitters, I think you're doing a, a good job of that. Um, so we're going to, we're going to wrap up here. Um, I, I think that's a, a, a good segue before we, we, um, we get off into a, a, another little rabbit hole, which wouldn't be a bad thing, but. Um, yeah, I, we've been going for a while now. I yeah. I know both of us have uh, some other commitments today. So uh, I guess with that, um, I, I thank you for, for coming on and, and chatting, chatting with me about your property and, and how you guys are doing things. Uh, I'm sure we'll have another discussion here in the future. And with that, stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk. Take care. Thanks, man.